Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we do come today thanking you for your grace and goodness, your kindness and mercy that has shattered and broken the rule of Satan and sin in our lives. Father, we thank you that uh, we can sing with hearts filled with love and joy toward you, that we give you everything, that every square inch of our life belongs to you, and that you have come to produce a change that starts inside and works itself outward in our lives. And Father, we can say that we surrender all. God, but it's only by your grace. And I pray that you would make us a church that indeed not only sings those words, but embodies them. I pray that you would make us a church that not only confesses that with our lips, but lives that with our lives. I pray that you would make us a church that passionately pursues you and your mission in this world to rescue and redeem. I pray that you would make us a church, God, that believes that, you, that your Son, the Lord Jesus, is better than anything the world has to offer. And that it would not be a rote, checking-the-box kind of religion, but rather it would be a heartfelt joy that overflows into our lives of love and service to you and to those who are around us in your name. Father, I thank you for the work that you have done in the lives of our students as they went away for a week. And God, I pray that some of the trickle and overflow of that would um, become infectious in the life of our church as their hearts have been set ablaze with love and affection for your son. I pray, God, that our church, the hearts of our adults would be set ablaze with love and affection for your son and for the work that he has accomplished in our lives. And so, Father, now I pray that your spirit would come and attend to the preaching of your word, and as your word goes forth, that it would convict and that it would encourage, it would challenge and it would inspire, and it would liberate and rescue. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And grab a seat. If you've got a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, it's going to be on the screen for you. Uh, welcome to all those of you who are new with us this morning. My name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Sabine Creek Fellowship, and we're glad that you're with us. We've been in the process over the last couple of weeks, um, and we will be next week as well, of kind of pushing reset in the life of our church and revisiting why we exist and where we're headed. And so that's what we're looking at for the last couple of weeks. Last week we looked at being a family of servants that has a passion and zeal for the work that God is doing in our lives that boils over from a heart that is filled with joy in the hope that we have in Christ and His return one day. And this morning we want to take a look at what it means not only to be a family of servants, but also a family of missionaries. And the text that we're going to be digging into is in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, and we'll read down through verse 35 together. If you don't have a copy, it's on the screen for you. I encourage you to follow along. Beginning in verse 20, the text reads as follows. Then he went home, speaking of Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. So he called them. To him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. 
But, in verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven to the children of man, but whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit." And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, if you look at any of our language on our website or if you come through our membership process, one of the things that we emphasize in the context of uh, communicating who we are, what our values and vision is, is that we want to be, our aim is to be what we would call a gospel-centered church, a gospel-centered church. And that makes everything that we do, whether it be in this room or out in the community, about the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the return of Jesus Christ. And so whenever you come to Sabine Creek Fellowship, you're probably not going to hear a whole lot of sermons about how to balance your checkbook, okay? Um, But everything that we say is going to have some financial ripples in your life. And you're probably not going to hear a whole lot of sermons about how to have your best marriage now, right? But everything that we say is going to have some marital ripples in your life and the way that you treat your spouse, for those of you who are married, or the way that you pursue a spouse, for those of you who may be single, When you come here, you're not going to hear a whole lot of sermons uh, about how to raise well-adjusted kids who contribute to society. But everything that we say is going to have some parental ripples in your life as you invest in the lives of your children, as you shepherd them and teach them and instruct them in the ways of Christ. We won't preach a whole bunch of sermons about how to maximize your influence, achieve your goals, or reach your full potential. Okay, But everything that we say is going to have some personal ripples in your life for the way that you conduct yourself and how you live. We aim to be a gospel-centered church, and so we're going to preach a whole lot of sermons about the good news of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about Him a lot. We're going to hold Him up, and we're going to, we're going to make Him... We, our, our aim is to make Him famous and to show Him off to the world and what He's able to do in and through the lives of His people. We're going to talk a whole lot about how Jesus Christ lived the life that you and I could not live, right? And how He died the death that you and I deserved to die. And how not only was He laid in a grave, but three days later He rose again, victorious over Satan's sin and death. And He does that to take upon Himself the wrath of God for our sin at the cross and be raised to give us a new life, a new kind of life, that would glorify and bring honor to God. And we're going to talk a lot about how that works itself out and the implications of that truth and that message in our lives. All these ripples that it will have for us and the way it shapes us as Jesus' disciples. Our mission statement actually as a church is that we want to share the gospel in everything that we do. We want that to be the, at the forefront of all that we're saying and all that we're doing. And then as those who are drawn to the message of Jesus Christ and become his followers, we want to see their lives become shaped by that very gospel message. They, they become disciples of Jesus and so they begin to reorient everything around who he is, where he's going, and what he's doing. And then we want to be able to send out missionaries locally and globally in our neighborhoods and around the world to take that message to the ends of the earth of holding up Jesus for who he is and what he's done.
Now here at Sabine Creek Fellowship, we also recognize there's a difference between the means of the gospel and the end of the gospel, right? And the end of the gospel, if you look at a map, and we looked at a lot of those this week as we drove to and from Colorado, but when you look at a map, right, there's ultimately whenever you set out on a road trip, there's a destination, there's a point that you're trying to reach, right, that you're aiming to reach on your travels. And when you think about the end of the gospel, what God is attempting to accomplish and pursuing through his work in human history, there's an end to that, right? There's an end point, there's a destination on the map that he's going to arrive at one day whenever this age comes to a close and a new age opens. There's an end point to that. You see, what was lost in the garden back in Genesis chapter 3 when our first parents fell and sin entered the world and began to wreak havoc on humanity and began to destroy lives and gut us. That ultimately where God is headed is to put all that right and put all that back together one day in another garden. What was lost in a garden in Genesis chapter 3 will be restored in a garden in Revelation chapter 22. Where the text says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, in, Gen- in Revelation chapter 22, John sees this new garden with the tree of life from which our first parents were banished after their sin and fall in Genesis 3. You come to the whole course of the Bible to Revelation 22, and there's a new garden and a new life, and the tree of life is now accessible, and it brings healing to all the nations and peoples of the earth. That's where things are headed. We're headed toward a future in which God is going to restore and make all things new. There's a day that's coming where all the pride and all the brokenness, and all the anger, and all the lust, and all the abuse and isolation, and terrorism and racism, all the injustice and genocide and murder, all the disease and prejudice, and the distortion of all of God's creation, and calling evil good and good evil, all of that is going to be burned up and skimmed off as dross is on precious metals. All of it. All of it. Peter describes that in 2 Peter chapter 3 about this fire that's going to consume this creation and a new heavens and a new earth that is coming, that's renewed and restored where all things are made right. That is the end to which we are headed. That's the end. But the means by which God will get us there, the route that He's going to take to get to that destination, right? We talk about that around here as as uh, that there's a distinction between the means and the end, between the destination and the route, and the route that God is taking in order to get to that intended destination is by restoring and renewing lives by grace, through faith, and in Christ. By grace, through faith, and in Christ. He's renewing and restoring and reorienting and rescuing. See, what our first parents lost in the garden is going to be restored in a garden one day, but the way that Jesus and the way that God the Father is getting us there is through another garden in Gethsemane where Jesus said, not my will, but yours. And he went to the cross 
what was lost in the garden will be restored in the garden because of what Jesus did in his own garden. That's the means by which God is doing this. He'll begin to restore lives and put lives back together that are broken. In fact, we're told about this in Colossians chapter 1, which is already taking place in people's lives. As in Colossians 1, Paul writes these words in verse 13 and 14. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what God is doing is He's taking us out of one jurisdiction and one rule and one kingdom, and He's placing us under another under Jesus' benevolent, good, and gracious reign in our lives. There's a transference that takes place of our citizenship from one world to another, and thereby God begins to restore and reorder and rework all that is broken in our world and all that is broken in our lives. He's working to produce humility where there is pride. He's working to produce generosity where there is greed, sacrifice where there is selfishness, gentleness where there is anger, patience where there is a short fuse and a lot of irritation. He's working to produce love where there is hatred, joy where there is despair. He's working to produce peace where there is turmoil and anxiety. He's working to produce kindness where there is apathy and cruelty. He's working to create faithfulness where there is treachery and treason. And he's working to create self-control and restraint where there is depravity and all kinds of rampant immorality. That's the means by which we're headed toward this new heavens and new earth. By grace, through faith, and in Christ, God begins to put lives back together and we're headed toward a destination on the map one day. But this text that we just read in Mark's Gospel tells us something very important and incredibly crucial if we're going to understand how this reorienting starts, how this uh, reworking and restoring begins in our lives. And what this text tells us in Mark's Gospel is this is that before God can do something in us, He's got to do something for us. Before God can do something through us, He's got to do something on our behalf. That's exactly what Jesus says He has come to do in the text that we just read in Mark's Gospel. And so as we dig into this text this morning together for a little while, I want us to see what must Jesus do for us before He can begin to do these things in us. And then once he begins to do these things, once he does this for us and begins to do these things in us, then what does he do through us? Okay? So those two questions in particular. What does he do for us? And then what does he begin to do through us? And the answer to the first question is this. In Mark's Gospel in chapter 3, in that particular, in the, the, the middle section of that text that we just read together, Jesus says that in order for that restoration and God's restorative work to begin to take place in our lives, he's got to liberate us before he can restore us. There must be liberation before there can be restoration. There must be rescue before we can be restored. We've got to be released We've got to be released from captivity and bondage before the restorative process can begin in our lives. That's what Jesus says. In fact, all throughout the Gospels, there's an account of Jesus' ministry as being one by which he would liberate captives and set people free. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus shows up in the synagogue one day. His first public sermon he's going to preach in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 4, 
Jesus walks in, they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, and Jesus flips through the scroll of Isaiah until he comes to the point in which Isaiah writes these words in Isaiah 61, 1-2. And Jesus, in that synagogue, his first public sermon, he rolls in, opens the scroll, reads the scroll, drops the mic, and walks out and begins his public ministry as he begins to engage people and set them free. And this is what he says in Luke 4, 18-19. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says, my ministry is going to be about a a ministry of liberation, of rescue, of setting those who are oppressed and held in bondage, setting them free, setting them free. And then in Mark's gospel in chapter 1, now, Jesus shows up at Capernaum, and he, on the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue and starts teaching. And the people there are astonished by the things that he's saying. They're going, man, we've never heard anybody teach like this. This guy has authority like we've never heard before. And not only does he start teaching in Mark's gospel, but also in Mark chapter 1, in verses 21 to 28, immediately uh, there, was, there was a man in verse 23 immediately there was in their synagogue a man who had an unclean spirit and he cried out what have you to do with us Jesus of Nazareth have you come to destroy us I know who you are the Holy One of God and Jesus in verse 25 rebukes him says be silent and come out of him and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out in a loud voice came out of him and all were amazed And so Jesus' fame begins to spread, Mark tells us in verse 28. At once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. So like his Facebook feed lights up and his Twitter followers, right, at the Son of God, right, all of a sudden explodes. And people are following Jesus and they're looking for Jesus and they're listening to Jesus because they see how he is taught and they see the power with which he works as he sets people free. You fast forward into Mark chapter 4 and chapter 5 and you see Jesus setting free this man who had been bound in captivity for years, living in the graveyard, cutting himself with stones in shackles because he was a threat and menace to society and Jesus sets him free of all the demonic possession that was in his life Jesus ministry Mark says Luke says Matthew says John says is a ministry of liberty bringing release to the captives And in order for this restorative work of God to take place in our lives there must be a liberating work of God that takes place first And this makes absolute sense right Absolute sense. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an incredible injustice and travesty and, travesty and perversion that across the globe annually, thousands of innocent small children are taken into captivity by sex slave traders. And they're forced to view hours of pornographic material to learn how to perform sexual acts on perverted men who would come and pay for time with them. And they're held in these brothels across the globe. It happens here in America as well. And if you were going to seek to restore a young lady who had been held by a captor in the sex trade over the course of her life for years, perhaps some of them, and all they know is professional prostitution. You couldn't just pay for time to go into the brothel and sit with her every day and then talk to her about what life looks like on the outside. In order to begin the restorative work in her life, you would have to break her free from her captors. You would have to release her from her abusers. You would have to pull her out of that oppression and Jesus says that's why I'm here 
That's why I'm here, to release captives and pull them out from underneath the thumb of the one who rules and reigns over them to destroy their lives. That's what he says in Mark chapter 3. That we need liberation. That we need rescue. That we need someone to take us out of the oppression that we have been born into. We need to be liberated because subsequent to the fall, we are all born. We are all born into this world as captives who have been blinded to the glory of God. We've been blinded by it or blinded to it by Satan and sin. In fact, that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In other words, those who are, who are fading away, those who do not know the glory of God. In their case, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So in other words, coming into this world, we're blinded to the glory of God and we need someone to give us eyes to see it. We need someone to put glasses on us to correct our vision, remove the scales so that our eyes can now see. And Jesus says, that's what he has come to do. Now, how does he accomplish it? How does he accomplish it? There's two ways. There's two ways that you can overthrow an oppressor. There's two ways that you can overthrow a king. You can do it from the inside or you can do it from the outside. You can raise up from the inside or you can overthrow it and invade from the outside. And listen, the scribes and Pharisees in Mark chapter 3 assume that what Jesus is doing, right? We read the text earlier. In Mark chapter 3, they assume that what Jesus is doing is that, he is, there's, that, that Satan is divided against himself. Okay? They say that he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. Okay? And so that's what they accuse him of. They accuse him of having an unclean spirit. So they don't think that what he's doing is actually the work of God, but actually the work of the devil himself. And so they believe that what's happening in their midst is that Jesus right, is working by the power of Satan to cast out these demons and control them and send them away from these people that they have been, living, they have been abusing and oppressing all of their lives. And it's, they, they, they might be, there's, there's, some, there's some, a little bit of a reason to that. A kingdom can be overthrown by treason, can't it? Absolutely, a king can be toppled by those inside who begin to plot and conspire against him to rise up from within and overthrow him. And that's what the scribes think is happening in Mark chapter 3. But Jesus says there's another way that a kingdom can come to an end. Not only can it come to an end from treason and conspiracy from within, but by invasion from without, from outside, someone breaking in to destroy what's taking place. And Jesus says, this is what I've come to do in verses 23 to 27 in his response to their accusation. Jesus says, why? this is why I'm here. This is why I'm here. I haven't come. To, I'm, not, I'm not working by the power of Satan. In fact, that's why he goes on to say these things about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because essentially what they were doing is they were resisting the work of the Holy Spirit to illumine Christ in their life. And so they were, not, they, were, they, were, uh, they were saying basically they were calling good evil. That what Jesus is doing, he's doing by the work and the power of the devil. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. No, I'm a stronger king who's come to invade from the outside to release captives. That's what Jesus says he's come to do. He's casting out demons. He's binding Satan, destroying the work of the devil. In fact, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, John writes these words. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus says, that's why I'm here. So how does he accomplish our liberation? 
He accomplishes it as a king invading from the outside to release all those who have been in captivity and under bondage and oppression and been abused so that he might then begin to restore their lives into the image of God. That's what Jesus has come to do. And he uses a beautiful image to do it, right? He says, I've come to bind up the strong man. He says, listen, nobody can plunder a strong man's house. Nobody can rob a strong man's house. When you come in, you're going to get punched in the mouth, all right? And you're going to get dropped to the floor whenever you try and go up against the strong man on your own. He says, the only person who can plunder the strong man's house is someone who is stronger than the strong man. Someone who is stronger than the strong man needs to bind him up and then indeed, I love the way the text says it, then indeed, absolutely he will begin to steal everything back, reclaim everything that was lost in the fall. And Jesus says, that's why I'm here. Very vivid image he uses to communicate this. He's here to bind up the strong man so his house can be plundered and people can be set free. They can be liberated. They can be rescued from bondage to Satan, sin, and death, Jesus says. That's what he's come to do. It's a beautiful image. And he's come to do it by giving himself to and for those people who have been oppressed, those people who have been blinded by Satan. Augustine, St. Augustine, a, 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 a a theologian in the life of the church in the 4th century said it this way. He said, Seeing then that man fell through pride, he restored him through humility. We were ensnared by the wisdom of the serpent. We are set free by the foolishness of God. Because when you look at the cross, you go, that doesn't make any sense. In fact, Paul will say it's foolishness to, the, to, those, to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. It's not wisdom, it's foolishness. And Augustine says, you were ensnared. We were ensnared in the garden. Our first parents fell when they were, they were enticed and tempted by the wisdom of the serpent. He says, this is how you should live. You should elevate yourself above God. right? Be God for yourself so that you would know all things. The wisdom of the serpent is what ensnared us. And, Jesus, and Augustine says, what sets us free is not pride, but humility. And not the wisdom of the serpent, but the foolishness of God as Jesus goes to the cross you see it in Philippians chapter 2, where he who was in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but what? Humbled himself, even to the point of death on a cross, so that God saw him, raised him from the grave, and established his name as the name at which every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is God of the glory of God the Father. That's what God has done in the gospel, to set us free, to release us from captivity. He's bound the strong man so that his house could be plundered. And listen, here's why this is so important for you and I to understand. This is so crucial and vital for us. Because some of you in this room this morning, you have lived your entire life thinking, I can never be free. I can never be free from the sin that has entangled me all of my life. I can never be free from the lust. Some of you have been addicted to pornography for years and years and years. And you just wake up every morning thinking, I can never be free. I'm going to have to live like this all of my life. Some of you have struggled with substance abuse and you think, I can never be free. 
Some of you have struggled with insecurities that are birthed from a lack of security in who you are and God has made you in his image and redeemed you by his blood. And you go, I can never be free from all the insecurities that I feel and the compares, constant comparisons that I make toward everyone else who is around me. I can never be free. See, some of us are still living blinded by the lies of a devil. And Jesus says he's come to tie him up and to put him in a chokehold, right? Now listen, I, I don't watch a whole lot of UFC. I've seen a couple of fights, right? But when you enter the octagon, okay, it's all, there's very, very little rules, okay? And you're, you're in a fight until somebody taps out or passes out, one of the two, okay? So until somebody taps out or passes out, and what Jesus has done is he's come in, and he's got this incredibly strong competitor standing on the other side of the ring, and he has put him in a submission hold and grabbed him around the neck, and he has choked him out at the cross. You know what that means? It means you don't have to live in bondage to lust and pornography any longer. You don't have to live in bondage to the opinions of other people any longer and the constant comparisons and the insecurities they produce any longer. You don't have to live in bondage to the addictions to substances that you think are going to bring you joy and happiness any longer. That is good news. That is gospel. That Jesus has come to release the captives and to set them free. And some of you need to hear that this morning. Some of you students who were at camp this week, you need to hear that this morning. Some of you adults who weren't at camp this week, you need to hear that this morning. That there is liberation, there is freedom, there is release and rescue in Jesus and Jesus alone. Because he's the only one strong enough to put Satan in a chokehold and let make him tap. It's the first thing this text tells us is that before this restorative work of God can take place in our life, we've got to be rescued. And some of you have been with us for weeks or for months and you're investigating Jesus and you're thinking about Jesus and you're hearing the claims of Jesus and you're hearing us talk about Jesus and perhaps this morning is that time in which God would unblind your eyes, in which God would soften your heart, in which God would open your ears, in which God would enlighten the dullness of your mind, and you would for the first time be able to see the beauty and glory of this Christ who has come to liberate and rescue you and crush the work of the devil in your life. Oh, and I hope that he would. I hope that he would. The second thing this text tells us, the second thing, and this one will be a little bit shorter, don't worry. The second thing this text tells us, I think, the second thing that we see here is that what Jesus calls us who have been liberated to do is to give our lives and live our lives and order our lives and reorient our lives around seeing people released and restored to the glory of God. So those of us who have been liberated now become agents of liberation. Those of us who have, become, have been rescued, we now become the special ops forces that go in behind enemy lines to retrieve and rescue others with this news that Jesus can save, that Jesus can liberate, that Jesus can set free. That's what God has called us to do. 
Now listen, what Mark likes to do throughout his gospel, he likes to use sandwiches to communicate truth. And I like sandwiches, right? I like ham sandwiches, turkey sandwiches, put a little bacon on that, it becomes really, really good. I love sandwiches, but Mark uses sandwiches to communicate truth, and he does that here. In other words, he takes a truth that he wraps around, the, the, it kind of has two slices of bread on one end and the meat in the middle. We just looked at the meat in the middle, now we're going to take a look at these two slices of bread that he puts on the outside to show us, to show us what it is to live as a follower of Jesus in this world after we've been liberated and set free from captivity to Satan, sin, and death, right? If you notice in the text in verse 20 and 21 and again in verse 30 to 35, what Jesus does is he redefines who his true family is. He redefines who his true family is. And this is important in a culture like ours, in a very kind of nominal, Christianized culture that's kind of really moving toward more of a post-Christian culture, but in a very nominal Christian culture, it's important for us to understand what Jesus says here. Because in our culture and oftentimes in the church, we assume that everyone who lives is a part of God's family. Everyone who's ever been born is a part of God's family. Everyone's a member of God's household. Everyone's waiting on an inheritance from God. Right? Everyone is God's son or daughter. But... And there's probably no clearer place to see this than a funeral of an unbeliever, right? Um, many times those who, who have not professed faith in Jesus, they have not followed Jesus, they have not loved and served and honored Jesus with their lives, they come to their death and everyone gathers to celebrate their life and they talk about how they are in this better place. Well, they may not be in a better place than this. They may be in a whole lot worse place than this because not everyone who is born naturally ends up being born again. That's reality. Not everyone is a son or daughter of God. The scriptures bear that out. The scriptures talk about in Genesis 1 how we're image bearers of God. And though the image of God in our lives has never been erased, it has most definitely been defaced through the fall. So that like a great piece of architecture or a sculpture, it's got this real cheap graffiti spray painted all over it to where the image of God in us is still there, but it's hard to see based upon actions and attitudes of people toward God and others in our world. So we still are image bearers of God, but not everybody is his son or daughter. Not everyone's a part of his family. Not everyone's waiting on an inheritance from him. Paul says in Romans 8, the only ones, the only ones who are sons and daughters of God are those, he says, who are led by the Spirit. The Spirit's producing work in their lives is directing and guiding and prompting and leading them. Those are the ones who can call themselves children of God. They are the ones who have the spirit of adoption by whom they cry, Abba, Father. And they see God not as a threat to their security or their sovereignty, but they see God as their dad. And they come to him with intimacy and surrender. Those are the ones who are the family of God. In fact, the Bible even goes further than that to say that not only are we not sons and daughters, but we're actually enemies who have thrown the first punch. We're actually enemies who have fired the first shot, dropped the first bomb, launched the first missile, and declaring war on God. In Romans 5, verse 10, Paul says, for if while we were enemies, there was a point while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by Christ. Only through Jesus are we made sons and daughters of God. Only through Jesus do we become a part of God's family. Only through faith in Jesus do we become those who are waiting on an inheritance and a hope for the future. Only through Him. Jesus' family is made up of all kinds of people, red and yellow, black and white, right? They're all, all kinds of people, 
But not every person. Not every person. And in verses 20 to 21 in Mark chapter 3, Jesus' mother and brothers, they come looking for him and they want to seize him because they think that he has lost it. They think, the text says, he's out of his mind. He has gone crazy, right? So they think he's a few fries short of a Happy Meal, okay? A few pennies short of a dollar, a few ounces shorter than a gallon. So they show up with all these orderlies and some sedatives to take him to the nice state psych hospital down in Terrell, right? That's where they're headed with him. That's why they've come, to seize him, because they think he's a danger to himself or to them, that he's going to end up getting himself killed and defame their family. They're going to lose honor on account of him in their culture because they think that he's crazy. And so they've come to seize him. And in verse 35, whenever Jesus is told, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside looking for you, what does he say? He looks around at those who are gathered there with him. He says, you want to know who my true family is? You want to know who really is a part of this family with me? And he looks around at his closest followers who are there situated around him, and he says, you are my family. And he says, for everyone who does the will of God is my true mother and brothers and sister. So Jesus says, I may have these biological connections with these folks here. As Mary as my mother and these other brothers as my half-brothers, but the people who are my true family are the ones who give their lives to and for the will of God. Now we may think in a text like this, well, well Jesus is talking in, ve- in very much generalities. right? The, so anyone who does the will of God and they honor God and they serve God, but, and, and while that is true, we can't discount that here. I think Jesus has something very particular in mind when he thinks of doing the will of God. And here's what I think Jesus has in mind. Jesus has in mind those folks who are part of his true family are those who participate in the plundering of the strong man's house. They're on mission with Jesus. They're going where he's going. They're doing what he's doing. They are following in his footsteps as he leads. Listen, as we were walking up the mountain this week in Colorado, we had a big group hike on Thursday morning. And on Friday morning, we had just a little, a couple of us went out and ran. um, And we hiked a little bit back up to the same place that we'd hiked before. And I found myself in the precarious position of falling after Kevin on the way up the second day up that mountain, okay? And so we're walking up, and me and Dane and Kevin are climbing up this mountain again, and we're, as we're heading up to the top of this little over, scenic overlook, I find myself behind Kevin, and so I'm just watching where his feet go, right? Because he's got eyes on the trail right in front of us, so I'm watching where his feet go, and everywhere he steps, I'm stepping, because he's analyzed this, right? Former Marine, okay? Analyzed everything about how he, like he knows where the snipers are in the woods okay so he's analyzed every step that he's taking and so every step that he takes I put my foot right behind him as we make our way up this mountain and Jesus says in this journey those who are part of my family are those who are putting their feet everywhere that I step everywhere that I'm leading everywhere that I've gone they're going Jesus says, my true family are those who participate in the plundering of the strong man's house because I have come and through my death and resurrection and ascension and reign and rule in human history, I have bound up Satan. I've put him in a chokehold and now we get to be sent into his house to plunder his possessions. Those who have been held captive by him, those who think they can never 
be free. Jesus says, my family is a family of missionaries. My family is a family who are putting their feet in every place that I step. My family is a family of those who are seeing people cross over from death to life, from darkness to light, from despair to hope and joy and peace. That's my family, Jesus says. And listen, we have seen that take place here at Sabine Creek Fellowship. Last summer, we had a big 4th of July event out here, and we had fireworks and bounce houses and food and all kinds of stuff. We had people from the community that were invited, and we had one particular gentleman who showed up with his son. It was the very first exposure to our church. And he shows up, and they have a great time with the fireworks. He shows up the next Sunday morning, and we were preaching through a series on the fruit of the Spirit last summer. And we were talking about how true change begins at the heart level with the gospel bringing bringing about a reorientation in our lives, and it begins to work out as this fruit is born. The change starts at the root, and it begins to express itself through these fruit. And week after week after week after week, he heard this message. And about two months after he had been here, he filled out a prayer card. And he said, pray for me. I want to be a better man, but I need a new heart. As that truth began to settle on his mind and heart, he realized, listen, I can't manufacture the kind of change that I need in and of myself. And so a couple of days later, I met him at a Starbucks in Rockwall. That's where all good meetings happen, right? At a coffee shop. So I met him at a Starbucks in Rockwall. And so we're sitting there, and we're talking about his sin and about God's grace and it was one of the most sweet times that I've had in ministry because I didn't give him, feed him the words to say. I said, brother, I'm going to pray for you. And Brian was there. Brian's going to pray for you. And then I want you to pray. And I want you to express your heart to God and ask him to save you. And as we sat there and through many tears and much emotion, he lifts this prayer to God. And on the basis of his confession, God saved him. He gets plugged into a life group, and God has begun to restore. He's got a long way to go, and he would tell you that himself, but God's begun to restore him. In November, I had the privilege of baptizing him here in this room. And I want to tell you, that never gets old. That never gets old for me. And my prayer is that God would raise up a church that is a family of missionaries who are a part of plundering the strong man's possessions and seeing captives released and set free. That's what I want to see. That's what our elders want to see. That's what our staff want to see. Is that God would be gracious to save and sanctify many through the ministry of this church. His church. If you're here this morning and you've lived thinking, I can never be free, I want you to know you're wrong. Jesus has come to bind Satan and to liberate you and give you freedom and to begin to bring humility where there was pride and joy where there was despair and patience where there was irritation and turmoil. That's why he's come.
If you've been here and you've been thinking about that, I want to appeal to you this morning. Trust Him. He's done it before. You see it on the pages of Mark's gospel. He's releasing people from their captivity. He's done it before. And that tells us He'll do it again. He'll do it for you if you will trust Him. And if He has, if He has, I hope my prayer is that we would go out from this place and we would live as a family who has been sent by God with a message of liberation and freedom. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to respond to God in song together. Let's pray. Father, we come today. We thank you for the fact that you have come to set us free. The fact that Jesus has come to destroy the work of the devil to open up eyes that have been blinded to release captives that have been in bondage. And he's come to do it. And he does it now through his church. Would you give us the faith to believe not only that we can be free, but that we can be agents of that freedom by doing your will and participating in the plundering of Satan's possessions, all those men and women, boys and girls, who have been born blind to the beauty and glory. Father, I pray, I pray that you would make us a church that lives with a heart that beats as a family that is bound together and because we've been born by the gospel message and bound together by it to take it to the world. Father, as we sing and celebrate this morning and our service comes to a close, I pray I pray, God, that you would give us a resolve to know that you are working and you give us a resolve to be a part of that work. We pray in Jesus' name.